step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChampaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to a day with crime podcast, where a crime a day keeps the doctor away. You're your host, David and Geneva McClure. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of A Day with Crime. We're your hosts, David and Geneva. You are listening to season four, episode two. Geneva, how are you doing today? I am doing great. You know, 2021 for me. It's the year of doing scary things, so I finally got my roller skates today. But I'm going to learn how to roller skate this year. I have to learn by August because my goal is when I go home for my brother's 21st birthday, um, I want to be able to go to the skating rink with my sisters. Also, Ariana keeps asking to go to the skating rink. I mean, other than that, you know, the weather's been pretty mild here. Although Floridians act like we in the dead of winter or something, it's really not that cold. Yeah, that, that's about how it's going here. How are you, Dad? Well, I am doing pretty well. Everything's going good. You got to try new things. You know, 2021, new year. Got to erase what happened in 2020. So I'll figure out what I'm going to try to do this year. I know I'm going to do something. I think the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to do this new Apple Fitness, going for a new, better, healthier 2021. So we're going to give that a shot. But otherwise, doing pretty good. It is a little chilly down here in good old California. Other than that, we're doing pretty good. All right, guys. Well, before we get started with today's case, a couple things I do want to say. I do want to take time to acknowledge that, unfortunately, us in America, we in America here, has hit a very bad milestone of over 400,000 people has passed away from COVID-19. So I just wanted to say, since we do use our platform for good and we kind of talk about some things on here a little bit, I want to say to any of the families, if any of you guys out there who's lost somebody due to COVID-19, you have our condolences. I know it's been hard, um, especially when we have leadership that did not acknowledge that. You know, the, the president going in did acknowledge that today. He had a really touching ceremony for that. So I just wanted to say... Uh, you know, if you guys need somebody to talk to, you can always email us. Geneva and I, even though our parents did not die from COVID-19, loss is a loss. We still know what it feels like to lose somebody over the last year. So I just wanted to start out with that and say condolences and may they all rest in peace and hopefully the families heal. 
On a good note, though, we want to say thank you to all you guys who are listening to this podcast, especially those of you guys who's been with us since the beginning. Because today, Geneva and I, on this episode, season four, episode two, hits a big milestone. Probably a milestone that we wish that we would hit, but we weren't sure we would be around that long. So you are a part of the 100th episode of A Day With Crime. And I think the reason why this means so much to us is because not only is it the 100th episode, but it's also kind of history and podcasting from what we've been told because it's a milestone on a father-daughter podcast. We originated that, I guess, at this point, and we're the only one who's doing it. So we're happy for this milestone. Geneva, what you got to say about that 100th episode milestone? I am glad that we hit 100 episodes. I didn't think we would hit 100 episodes, not because I didn't think that we were capable, but because we've gone through a lot of stuff since this podcast started. I mean, we had, well, I had, I guess, technically me. Like, we were pretty smooth sailing when we started. And then... um in 2018, you know, my friend Jeff passed away unexpectedly. May he rest in peace. And then right after that, like a few months later, or maybe a month later, Opa passed away. So then I was like, well, maybe we shouldn't do the podcast anymore. But then you're like, no, girl, we're going to still do the podcast. Then 2020, you know, I guess just everybody thought that they would die in 2020. I mean, we had Kobe Bryant. And then right after Kobe Bryant, we had my mom, you know, and some other people throughout the year. My uncle and then grandma died. And so when my mama died, I was like, maybe we shouldn't do the podcast anymore. And you're like, no, girl, we're going to do the podcast. And then when grandma died, you were like, maybe we shouldn't do the podcast anymore. And I was like, listen, sir. <laughs> Absolutely not. See, we just be pulling through all of it. To the other side. The big question is this. So now that we've we hit 100 episodes, and you and folks, you can totally tell when you're having fun doing something because before we came on air, Geneva and I was talking about how it doesn't even feel like we've done 100 episodes. I do all the editing, and I don't feel like I've edited 100 episodes. So <clears throat> the big question is this. After all the stuff we went through with this podcast, heartache and stuff, would you change anything? This is terrible to say, but probably not. Only because, like, not that I wanted my mother to die. I don't need anybody coming at me sideways about that. But I feel like because we had to, like, support each other through the hard stuff, you know, it made us stronger as a podcast. I think it also made us stronger as people, uh, and it made us stronger relationship-wise, and I'll be the first to say that I wouldn't be able to do this to anybody else. So I am glad about our partnership. And uh, I hope you feel the same way, even though we both Scorpios and sometimes both of our heads is hard like Grams. Yes, guys, we do butt heads sometimes. But we always give y'all those episodes and we always come out better for it. So we want to thank you guys for being around for us for 100 episodes. And we hope you guys are with us for 100 more we're going to keep pushing the David crime until the wheels fall off. So you guys are stuck with us for a long time, it seems. 
All right, so today's case. Chose for the 100th episode for a reason. And it's because this case is so important that when you hit a milestone, I think you have to have a case that is big enough that people is going to remember that. And everybody's going to remember the 100th episode of the show. And that's why this particular case was picked. Geneva and I have wanted to do this episode for a while, uh, and I've kind of thrown the episode out, and then she's kind of thrown it out. And then after the documentary came out, she really threw it out. And for me, it's because it's really close to home. So today we're going to do the case of the murder of Gabriel Fernandez. All right, Geneva, you ready to do this one? I ain't ready for this. <laughs> I'm just not. I mean, at this point, I think we both watched the documentary at least twice. I watched it twice because I watched it once by myself and then we just watched it again. And I'm just, this might be the episode that I cry. I'm just saying. All right, so here's the disclaimer. This is dealing with the murder of a child, obviously. So if you have any triggers to that, or it's just a story that you just don't think you can handle hearing, I'm going to let you guys know that now. We're not going to cut anything out of this. If we did, it would be a disservice to this particular case. It is a case that has to be heard, and everything that we know about it, we need to tell you. It is a case that will make you uh, not happy at all, but it's a case that will make you outraged the more you listen to it. There is really no happy points in it. So, let's begin. Gabriel Fernandez was an eight-year-old boy from Palmdale, California, who was abused and tortured over a period of months that ultimately ended in his fatal beating on May 22, 2013, which led to his death two days later. His mother, Pearl Fernandez, and her boyfriend, Isaro Aguirre, were both charged and convicted of first-degree murder with special circumstances of torture. Throughout Fernandez's eight-month stay with his mother in Aguirre, multiple people reported signs of abuse to social workers with the Los Angeles County Department of Children and Family Services and the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. However, Fernandez was never removed from the household. This led to several concerns over the effectiveness and efficiency of social services in Los Angeles County and ultimately led to four social workers being criminally charged in Los Angeles Superior Court. Now, how are we going to do this one is we are going to take this from Wikipedia and fill some stuff in. This way, you guys can follow along with the case that like we normally always do. There's a lot of stuff in Wikipedia that's not there. So if you don't know the case, we're going to fill that in. And I'll give you some of the stuff I know from watching documentary two, three times. Some of us I know because I live right near this case. We'll link everything in the show notes. What we're going to do, we have to talk about Gabriel's mom and boyfriend. Uh, without we cutting them out, just wouldn't work. So we're going to jump down and talk about her right now. So Pearl Fernandez, it's actually Pearl Cynthia Fernandez, was born on August 29th of 1983. During her childhood, her father was in and out of jail, and Fernandez was claimed, has claimed that her mother did not love her and would hit her as a child. At the age of nine, Fernandez began using methamphetamine and drinking alcohol, and at the age of 11, Pearl decided to run away from home. She dropped out of school in the eighth grade. As a teenager, Pearl claimed that her uncle attempted to rape her and that some men had held her hostage for a period of days, taking turns raping her, which led to her having suicidal thoughts while at the hospital recovering. 
She has four children with Arnold Cortez, including Gabriel. When Gabriel was born, she abandoned him at the hospital three days after his birth. However, she re- regained custody of Gabriel in 2012. Additionally, she claims that many of her romantic partners, including Aguirre, were abusive to her. However, Elizabeth Carranza, Fernando, Fernandez's aunt, and her husband claim that Fernandez falsely portrays herself as a victim and that it was Fernandez who was abusive and controlling towards her romantic partners. Pearl had pending charges against her for threatening to stab Arnold Contreras. In the months following Gabriel's death, Pearl reported abusing the opiate drugs oxycodone and narco. Pearl has been diagnosed with several mental health issues, including depressive disorder, developmental disability, a possible personality. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Disorder and post traumatic stress disorder. In 2011, Fernandez took a cognitive ability test scoring in the third percentile in the verbal comprehensive portion of the test, which is on par with a typical second-grade student. Clinical psychologist Deborah S. Mirora stated that Fernandez is virtually unable to use thoughts to guide her behavior and control her emotional reactions. So let's talk about Pearl for a little bit, or for a few minutes. Um... So it has come out again, as you heard, that she was abused. Now, I'm totally sensitive to that because I am from an abusive childhood, too. I think we've talked about this before on the podcast. My dad was very overly abusive. I don't really look at that, and I understand some people look at it differently than I do, but some people use that as a crutch because I could, because of the fact that, you know, the mental things I went through back then, if I was a fly of the handlers, beat somebody up, I can say, hey, I had this when I was a kid. Go back and look at this record. And depending on how severe they think that it is, it would get me off. The problem is, is people who is totally okay know that they can work the system this way. But they've used that to say that this is why she did what she did to her son. I don't know how you feel about that. Because my thought pattern is this. I've always wanted to reverse the role that my dad did to me. So I never thought about wanting to beat anybody up. Sure, there's anger problems that does come from that. I've had to work through those. There's, uh, there's, you know, you can somebody can say hi to you the wrong way, and you're snapping. But we've never heard that she went to try to get any kind of help for that. So do you think that that is reasonable to consider that after we find out, you know, we know what she did to Gabriel? What do you think about that? Mental health and abuse are, like, real things. Don't get me wrong. But I'm not a person that uses those things as an excuse for my actions. You know what I mean? Um, they can be reasons that I may... They could. They can be... Sometimes I've had to use them as catalysts for why I've reacted a way that I have because it's the only way to explain it to somebody. You know what I mean? Because sometimes we don't, other people that don't suffer from things 
like what I suffer from PTSD, depression, anxiety, stuff like that. Uh, they don't understand unless you are able to kind of, for lack of a better term, to dumb it down for them. And that's the only way to do it. But it's hard for me when it comes to situations like this or situations, we talked about this before, like with the Las Vegas shooter or whatever. It's hard for me. I mean, if you've made no effort to get some kind of help, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I don't want to discredit that she was abused as a child or that she was gang raped because that's what they're saying is that that also happened to her um i don't want to discredit that because we don't know and i am a person that will believe the person is saying it unless i have some proof that they're lying and there doesn't seem to be any proof that she's lying about those things they seem to be things that have been corroborated or at least that people have said is a very strong possibility that those things did happen to her, uh, which could explain why she was abusive to her partners if she felt that she had lack of control in those, you know, in the past. I feel like she could have become the abuser, right? Because it made her feel like she had control, but I don't think that it's an excuse. I think that's why she got the punishment that she got. Well, there's a huge reason why she got that punishment, but we'll talk about that when we get there. Um, well, the one thing that sparks me with her is, yes, you can see it. If you guys go watch the documentary, The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez, it is up on Netflix. If you guys want to get deep dive into this, I'm telling you, it's heartbreaking, but it's something that I think everybody should see. Uh, you can kind of see a little bit, right? I, I thought when I first seen it the first time, I said, I think that she probably suffers from a little bit about bipolarism, too. And I say that because there's one trial where she's sitting there and she's irate and yelling and screaming, um, which is why her and Asaro could not be tried together. Because every time that he was near her, she had an outburst. And then there at another time, she's perfectly fine and still. Um, so, yes, I believe that probably she did probably have something that was there, but nobody got her any help. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Isaro, and we'll go back to, and then we'll read a little bit about Gabriel, and that will clear up why or how where Gabriel was until 2012. And I'm sure we have a lot to talk about in that section, too. Um, but the first elephant for me, the first elephant in the room for me was she abandoned Gabriel after she had him three days later. But true to how L.A. County Department of Children and Services is, somehow she worked her way in and got her back, got him back. All right, so the other murder in this case is Asaro Aguirre. He's also known as Tony Aguirre. He was born on June 13, 1980. Aguirre repeated two grades in school and ultimately dropped out, implying a possible learning disability. He worked for Woodland Park Retirement Hotel, where he was a caregiver and a driver. Executive director of the retirement home and former boss of Aguirre, Susan Weisbarth. Described him as a quiet, down-to-earth, nice person, always willing to help. She also commented that throughout his three-year employment, he was patient and loving and would commonly change the diapers of elderly residents at the facility. Staff at the facility nicknamed him Shaggy, which was, according to Wise Barth, a term referencing his endearment. Ex-co-worker Charlene Mill, who also worked for Woodland Park, 
retirement hotel noted that while Aguirre was driving residents, he would often drive them the scenic route so they could get to see views other than the freeway. In October of 2012, Aguirre began working as a security guard for AVL Private Security. Through AVL, he worked at the Vallarta Market in Palmdale, California. Aguirre met Pearl Fernandez roughly a year and a half to two years before they took custody of Gabriel Fernandez. All right, so that's Osaro Aguirre, the little bit we know about him. Now, it has been said that they feel that Osaro never met Pearl. Now, throughout this, Pearl becomes, I guess, the bomb in the middle of this. She's the catalyst because everybody says that if he would have never met Pearl, that they don't feel that Osaro would have ever turned out the way that he did and would have done anything that he's done in this case. Anything you want to say about Asaro Aguirre? I want to comment on the whole thing with we don't think that he would have turned out the way he did. I don't know I want to speak on this because I think that that is possibly true. So hear me out. We've seen this in other cases, the fatal attraction kind of cases where the one person is the is the catalyst right they're the mastermind whatever and then the other per but the other person may not have done what they did if it hadn't been for the first person so if we believe what pearl's aunt says which is that pearl is very abusive and controlling of her partners i think that it's possible because we speak all the time about like battered women's syndrome or battered wife syndrome. I'm sorry. We talk about all the time about how women get manipulated into helping their part, like helping their male partners carry out crimes. Right. But I feel like no one talks about the fact that it could be the other way around because I didn't hear. I don't remember hearing any kind of a character witness for Pearl like at all like no one seemed to have anything nice to say <laughs> about Pearl Fernandez at all like nobody like even when you hear in the documentary on Netflix even when you hear from her family like none of them have anything nice to say about her it's not funny but like we got a couple of people that theoretically knew this man right better than anybody else Right. So he, I, I mean, they worked with him what, every day when he worked at that place. They worked, it seems like both of these women worked intimately with him. And I mean, they're older ladies. So I feel like if he was doing something he shouldn't have done, they would have been the first ones to be like, nah, we can't give what, you know what I mean? We can't give character statements. And they had nice things to say about him. Everybody that gave a character statement on this dude had nice things to say. And no one seemed to have a nice thing to say about Pearl. And I just feel like that says a lot. Well, you know what? On that one, I'm going to agree with you. And here's why. If you guys watch the documentary, you may agree with us, too. And I'm, I'm certainly not. And I know Geneva's not as well. We're not being sympathetic to somebody who's accused of murdering a child. But when you do these kind of cases, you got to give the straight down the middle. And we always do. So if you watch the documentary... And just to see Susan Weisbarth on the stand, you know, for one, she's not making this up. She's an older lady. The other thing that strikes me, too, is anybody who would take the time to take care of an elderly person to the point to where 
they're ta- they're changing their diapers. It takes somebody that has some sense of compassion to want to clean up after another human being like that. And of course, everybody was saying the two ladies that testified were saying, like you heard me read, hey, he would even take them the scenic route. You know, so he wasn't just trying. He wasn't, well, I'm just doing this for the money. I get rid of all these old people. He was spending time with these older people, right? So he would take them the, the scenic route, which since you guys, I don't know if you guys live down here, but depending on where he is, there's a lot of scenic routes in California. There's some that could take you up to another hour and a half out of your way to come back to where you was going. So he's spending that time. Also, it was said, here's the things that's done on Wikipedia. Also, it was said that he felt that Pearl was like the finest thing he ever met and that she was above his league and that she would do, he would do anything to keep her and thought that, you know, if he didn't do anything to please her, she would leave him. Now, sorry, maybe it's just me. There's a couple of pictures that Pearl had that she looked all right, but I wouldn't say she was super fine. But in his eyes, this woman was above everybody else he's been with. He was really in love with her. And they think that's probably why he went the way that he went. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Before we get into the death and crime, let me tell you a little bit more about my man, Gabriel Fernandez. Gabriel was born on February 20th of 2005. His father is Arnold Contreras. And of course, his brother was Pearl Fernandez. Shortly after Gabriel's birth... He was put in the custody of his great uncle on his mother's side, which is Michael Lemos Carranza and his partner, David Martinez. They continued to raise Gabriel for four years. In 2009, four-year-old Gabriel moved in with his grandparents due to his grandfather's objection to Carranza's and Martinez's same-sex relationship. He lived with his grandparents until 2012 when custody of him was given to his mother, Pearl, and her boyfriend, Asaro Aguirre. Despite concerns for his welfare expressed by the family, throughout his six-month stay in the household, Gabriel was abused and tortured. Then on May 22, 2013, Pearl Fernandez and Azaro Aguirre severely beat Gabriel, and he was transported to the hospital by emergency services. He was declared brain dead and taken off life support at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, on May 24th of 2013, his official autopsy declared his cause of death to be blunt force trauma commingled with malnutrition and neglect. At the time of his death, he was four feet one inches tall and weighed 56 pounds. Gabriel had two siblings and attended first grade at Summerwind Elementary School, where his teacher was Jennifer Garcia. Garcia described Gabriel as a kind child who enjoyed attending school. Now, let's unpack that. There's a lot to unpack, so I'm going to give another trigger warning because we're about to talk about some stuff in here that's a little heart-wrenching, so I just wanted to let you guys know that off the bat. Let's start with his uncles. Whether you agree or disagree, whatever side you're on, with same-sex relationships, 
I'm going to tell you this one. Gabriel was taken care of extraordinarily well when it came to Michael Carranza and David Martinez. Now, Michael Carranza is the uncle. They never mistreated Gabriel. They loved him to death. And just in the photos you will see if you watch the documentary, you can tell they had a lot of love for him. Going down that route, though, that's when he ended up going to live with the grandparents because the grandfather said, hey, you know, two men can't raise a, a baby. You need to give them to us. And that was the objection. They were heartbroken, but they went along with it because they knew Gabriel would be safe and they were still able to have contact with Gabriel. I think we've talked about our different stances on that. And no matter how I feel about it, I'm going to tell you this flat out. That was the best place for Gabriel. And once he was taken away from both of them, they were heartbroken. It's like they just lost their best friend. Now, it did come down. I can't remember who was the one that accused him, but they tried to accuse his uncle at one point of sexually molesting Gabriel, and that never happened. I believe Pearl was the one that tried to say that it was the uncle that was abusing Gabriel because Gabriel would tell Pearl that he loved them. Well, I'm going to be the first one to tell you that never happened. And that was not the reason why the grandfather didn't want him to live there. He just felt like it was wrong. So Gabriel moved to the grandparents, was having a great life, beautiful life, until 2012 came and Pearl showed up. Now, all the grandparents really says is that if she showed up and said, this is my child, you got to give him to me. I think they don't go through all the rigmarole, but there had to be some kind of a court order because of her abandoning him and the things she had to do. And at some point, the court gave Gabriel back. I'm going to be the first one to say this on record. And if anybody worked for Children and Family Services in California, sorry, but it's the truth. This is the problem with a lot of DCFS places in different states, but especially here. It is harder for a parent who did nothing Okay, so the parent was just, somebody said, yeah, we heard that this kid's getting beat. Never happened. Parents clean as a whistle, goes to work every day, got an immaculate house. It is harder for that person to get their kid back than for somebody who's abandoned their child, abused drugs to the point of where they're just strung out all the time, and highly abusive to their kid. The grandparents put up a big fight. Nope, she can't go back. They was calling people. They said, we're concerned for his welfare. Nobody listened. What do you got to say about that part before I continue? Because as you know, it gets worse from here. What do, you, what do you think about the uncles and him moving around? Whether it's with the uncles or the grandparents, what do you think about Gabriel's life up until 2012? Well, the first thing I want to speak on is the last thing that you said, which was that... Uh it's easier for an undeserving parent, I guess, uh, to get their kid back than it is for someone that's actually working to get their kid back. I'm just saying, like, I've experienced that, like, as everyone knows, okay, <laughs> I have three children that were adopted, right? However, my ex that we don't name on this podcast, he lost his child shortly after um we like split up and I kicked him out and everything and he got her back in like less than a year after being on drugs jailed 
ran from cops, all that stuff. So, I mean, I can speak on that from experience, and I'm not even in California. I'm in Florida. So the system, while it may be the worst in California, it's broken everywhere. I'm sorry, but that's just what it is. Uh, I think they should have just left Gabriel where he was. I don't know why they gave her custody back considering that she actively abandoned him i'm confused on that definitely somebody in the system did something wrong because i just feel like she shouldn't i mean not only do i feel like she shouldn't have had the chance to get him back but like why did y'all not just leave him where he was happy and healthy well i will say this the only reason why i think that los angeles got the name that they have the worst DCFS in the world is because of, one, this case. Uh, And the other one is because we're, what, the second or third largest state in the union. Okay, so basically, you're going to have a lot more worse cases, I guess, when you have a lot more people. But I do agree with Geneva. The system is broken everywhere. And I give this caution. If you guys are going to call DCFS somebody, please be careful and know that you're making the call because you know something's going on. And the reason I say this is because we've had DCFS called on us. And I've called and yelled at my son's principal because of the fact that it came from the school. Now, here's how dumb this was. I guess, yes, there are people out there that's called mandated reporters. If you really want to look at it, all of us are mandated reporters, but there are certain jobs that you have that you are, by law, mandated reporters, which means that you have to call if you see, hear, or feel that something's going on in the home. But some people take that job just a little bit too seriously. And about a few months ago, that's what happened to me, my son, and my wife. I won't name her name. I won't even name the name of the school because being that I live here and that there's people that listen to my podcast who know it, So I'm just going to tell you like this. So I get a knock on the door one day. And this is when you know that Gabriel Fernandez case had shook everything. Um, First of all, as you guys have heard me say, my middle son had a lot of problems. So they sent DCFS out here when Jacob was born. And it was the most uncomfortable thing because the first thing they do is they walk in and they say, all right, take off his diaper. We need to search everything. Well, now they're searching everybody's body parts because of what happened to Gabriel, which we'll get into a little bit, get into that a little bit later but dcfs came out and understand that the kid is homeschooling because this is during the pandemic okay this is around april may of 2020 and i'm not going to door open the door as a cop and i'm like yeah can i help you and they're like yeah and the story was all messed up first of all they she said we were sent out here because we got a call and said that jacob said that he had went to school and that he had hurt that he hurts kids so we called Jacob out. Like, he never said that. It was wholly mistrued. Three days later, a knock comes on the door, and it's a DCF, a DCF worker. And now she's telling me that on a, on a Zoom call that it was called in that he had got spanked or uh, he had recalled a time that he had got a spanking or whatever and said that there was a red mark that was left. Now, this story that he's telling and he told the lady this was about a good three, four, five years ago. Uh, and yes, we do believe in spanking, but with a hand. 
But Jacob wasn't spanked at that time. What happened was Jacob had failed, and when Jacob failed, he hit his backside, and it, and it turned red. And he told the lady, I'm not being abused. This happened a long time ago. I used to be bad. Um, but I think that's where that came from. DCFS came out here, got all up in my business, and I called the school, and I ripped them a new one. Because the fact of the matter is, one, an abusive parent is not going to send their kid to school. Jacob had been to the school for the last three days at that time because they wanted to test him because they felt like that he was gifted. So everybody had already seen Jacob three times. Uh, so they know he wasn't being abused. They know he wasn't hurt. They seen him in Zoom class every day. And I used to educate people on what the harm of DCFS is. So the principal didn't even know, which breaks Palmdale School District's protocol. Because if you're going to make a DCFS call on a family, you're supposed to tell the principal. This lady didn't even do that. She just took it upon herself to call DCFS. Well, long story short, Jacob got skittish. He didn't want to go to school anymore. I was considering disrolling him or unrolling him from that school because nobody could be trusted anymore. I asked the principal, does he know what it feels like to have some strange woman come in the house and want to strip your kid down to his underwear or beyond that? when there's no need to do that and the nightmares that come behind that. My wife had a total anxiety attack because she's a visitor just going to come in and take the kid. And one day he was, and I said, I don't want him talking to this teacher ever again because she was a psychologist. I said, if he's supposed to be able to tell her things that is going to help his, you know, his behavior be better, now he feels like he can't tell her anything because every time he says something, they're going to call DCFS on us. I said, you don't need, you need to understand that when you make these calls, you're taking these people away from people that's actually being abused. The lady never believed Jacob was getting abused. How do I know that? Because she heard me ranting about it when I said, you're not supposed to be talking to her, and she wanted to call me. And out of her own mouth, she said, I know Jacob is not being abused. I never thought that he was being abused. But because of the fact that both of us was black and she heard the word whooping, her mind went back to 1970 when it was legal to chastise your children. And she thought he had got hit with a switch or something and he's just out here all butt red. But she said, well, I even told him that I don't think anything is going on. And it used to be a time if you call DCFS, you can say, hey, I'm just giving you this report. No need to act on it. But since Gabriel, they act on everything. That's all been cleared up now. But the school still doesn't understand the pain that causes because now you go into a file with DCFS and anytime anybody's called, they look at that file and go, oh, you know what? There's potential abuse. And in DCFS and California, this is how crooked they are. They look for ways and for reasons to take your children, not to keep you unified. And if you go and do some research on your own, you will find it. There's been judges that's getting kickbacks for how many kids they can remove from a home for no reason. So if you're going to call DCFS and people, please make sure that you know the kid is harmed, being harmed and abused so that the proper things is done. After he was taken, he was given back to Pearl. So this is what happened to him. In 2012, when Pearl came and got Gabriel, he was given complete custody by DCFS. Forget the fact that she was strung out. Forget the fact that she abandoned him. Forget the fact that all of his family has told DCFS and the police and anybody else who will listen that she never wanted Gabriel 
in the first place, that he was always treated differently than his siblings, they didn't listen. So they gave her full custody. And then it came out that she wanted full custody of Gabriel so that she could get welfare benefits. Now, I don't know if you guys understand how that works, but the more kids you have, the more food stamps you get, and the more money that you can get. She was given custody in spite of concerns from the family who had been taking care of Gabriel. She was neglectful towards other children. Gabriel then was moved in with his mother and her boyfriend, Asaro. While he was in the household of Pearl and Asaro for six months, Gabriel was systematically abused and tortured. The abuse included being forced to eat cat litter and feces, forced to eat his own vomit, regularly beaten, which caused broken bones, burned in various parts of the body, shot in various areas of the body, including the face and the groin with the BB gun, forced to wear female clothing, forced to sleep bound and gagged in a small cupboard, pepper sprayed, burned with cigarettes, given cold baths, and forced to eat spoiled or expired food. According to Gabriel's siblings, while Gabriel was being abused, his parents would laugh. Aguirre reportedly abused Gabriel because he believed he was homosexual. The abuse did not extend to Gabriel's siblings. We got to talk about that for a few minutes, for a few seconds. This is the hardest part of the case for me. So, yes, all of that's true. The box that he was kept in was drugged into the courtroom. They had a little cabinet that looked like that. If you put a couple shelves in it, you can make yourself a nice little book cabinet, had two doors on it. This is where he was forced to live after he was beaten and burned and tortured. You have to watch the documentary, people, because the heartbreaking thing about this whole box is when they came in to do the investigation, as you probably know or don't know, they come in with markers. And what they come in to mark is they want to mark things that they find. So they want to mark every blood stain. They want to mark every bullet wound or whatever. This box was so filled with nothing but those stickers. There was so much blood on the walls of where they was abusing Gabriel at that the FBI agent ran out of red stickers and had to go to a different color. I think they were yellow. So they drug this box into court all you see is this box, and when they open it up, and on the outside, nothing but stickers everywhere. The whole wearing the dress thing is because Gabriel did come out and tell his mom and her boyfriend that he thought that he liked other boys. That just heightened the whole entire abuse thing, so then he was forced to wear dresses as a way of humiliation. When I told you about coming into your house to strip your kids down, that's because there were so many BBs that was found in Gabriel's growing, and it was hidden. Okay, so unless you're going to have some a kid disrobe, which is illegal to have anybody do without the presence of a parent in the school, you're not going to find those. So when DCFS is called, regardless of how severe or unsevere the case is, they ask for you to strip your minor children down so they can make sure that you are not abusing them in this manner because they messed up on Gabriel's case. There was also a little story that when they went to apply for welfare, they went to the office downtown Palmdale to get welfare. And the guard noticed that 
the back of Gabriel's head was just full of what looked like cigarette burns. It's like his whole head had just been burned up. And he went and he said to the girl, he goes, didn't you see this kid? Well, the supervisor just told him don't call. This security guard put his own job at risk and he called DCFS. Still nobody's listening, but he's telling them this kid just came in. This is where I work. This is the name of the, per- of the people. Here's what's going on. Went out to the house. Didn't do a thorough investigation at all. I want you guys to understand, out of all these months that DCFS had been involved, they failed their job because they never walked in the house. They would say things like, Gable's not here. He's with his aunt and uncle, with his grandparents. But Gable's right in the back of the house, locked up in this box that they keep in the room. His brothers and sisters would try to take him food and sneak him food because of the stories they were telling. That if he didn't clean the cat box out properly, that they would make him, or at least Asara Gary would make him eat the cat food. If it didn't clean out properly, you're going to eat whatever's in the box. And I guess one day he said it was clean and the cat had just went and urinated, made him eat the litter. When he died in his autopsy, he had a lot of litter that they did find in his stomach. Total 129,000% abuse. Geneva, what do you got to say about the abuse that Gabriel Fernandez endured? It makes me want to throw up, to be honest. Like, we just watched this in the documentary, and, like, listening to you say it again, it just, it, like, I don't know. It makes me, like, physically ill. Like, I don't, I don't even know what to say. Like, it's like a, listen, it's very rare on this podcast that I'm speechless, okay? I talk a lot. I get it. But I, I, like, what do you even say? You know what I mean? Other than what we've said, which is, I don't really understand why they didn't leave Gabriel with the grandparents, I mean, fine if the grandparents didn't want him with the uncle or whatever, but, like, why didn't you leave him with the grandparents? Like, I'm just, I don't know. Like, I just feel like there was there were enough calls that were made that it, this, this case should not have ended the way that it did. And the thing is, is nobody, what anybody wants to say, DCFS missed the mark. There was daily calls, people. I want you guys to understand, there was daily calls from his teacher, Jennifer Garcia. On the daily, because Gabriel was coming in and either he was not clean or if he was clean, he had bruises. He had black eyes. He would say things like he fell out of his off his bike or whatever. She was calling daily to DCFS and nobody did anything, even to the point to where she refuses to give Gabriel's number out. Gabriel was student number 28. She never assigned number 28 again as long as she was teaching. Now, the reason why I say as long as she was teaching, well, because if you guys go back, I think in season two, maybe season one, there's an episode called A Principal, Three Teachers, and a Noose. Jennifer Garcia was one of the three teachers pictured in the noose. And when it came down to all the parents got outraged about it and she was about to lose her job, they asked her, why would she do this? I'm not going to go into the whole story, but basically it wasn't supposed to be shared, but this picture got shared around by accident from one of them, and instead of sending it to each other, they sent it to the whole entire school. So all the teachers got it. She said that the noose was representing 
the fact that Gabriel's parents was finally going to get what they deserved. I can tell you that that was not the case. His aunt and uncle got outraged as well as his grandparents said, stop using Gabriel's case because you made a mistake. The other people said things like they were saying smooth surfing and all that kind of stuff. But that's why Jennifer Garcia, at least at Summerwind Elementary School, which is where Gabriel went to, she's no longer a teacher there because of that incident. But I will, ha- I do have to give her props for the fact that while she was there with Gabriel, she tried and did everything. I agree with Geneva when we was watching it. She said, it's a shame that she had to turn out being one teacher with the news because it did appear that she really cared a lot about Gabriel. And I agree, she did. So it's not like, guys, that there was not a whole lot of people saying you need to take this child. They've been out to the house several times and would just take word for it. Even when, even when they had to go stand trial, they were saying, did you walk in the room? Did you go through the house? Did you go see if Gabriel wasn't there? No. So you just took Pearl Fernandez's word for it that he was really out of town. Yeah, we really believe that he moved to Texas with his grandma. The boy was sitting in the back, probably just freshly got beat, unfortunately, and he's sitting in this box. That If they just would say, let me see, let me make sure, let me comb through everything like they have the authority to do, Gabriel will still be alive right now. But he was failed by the system. All right, so... On May 22nd, 2013, Pearl called 911 to report that her child, Gabriel, was not breathing. Gabriel had been fatally beaten by his mother in Aguirre after failing to clean up his toys. When first responders arrived, they found him on the ground naked with several injuries. Aguirre explained to them that Fernandez was gay. Paramedics rushed him to the hospital where doctors declared him brain dead. And unfortunately, he passed away two days later on May 24th, 2013 at the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. He died at the age of eight years old, and the official autopsy declared he died of blunt force trauma coincided with neglect and malnutrition. Let's fill in the gaps on that one. Yes, it is true. When the paramedics got there, they, for whatever reason, the sorrow decided to say, yeah, well, you know what, he gay. And the way that all the, the way that all the paramedics and police took it was, okay, so eight-year-old, you saying he's gay, so you automatically treating him different. That already set off a red flag for them. But then he started telling the police other things, like, don't believe anything he says, he's a liar. Uh, anything he says is going to be a lie. Nothing's really ever happened to him. When they tried to ask him what happened, why Gabriel was so beat up, guys, I... I I, like I said, we got to tell you the nitty-gritty. When he got to the hospital, they didn't know where to start looking at his body. They didn't know where one bruise started and where one bruise ended. There were so many bruises on this baby's body that there were old bruises, there were new bruises and wounds, and there were bruises and wounds that was currently either healed or in the stages of healing. If you watch the documentary, they show you all the autopsy photos and even though I heard about the case until that documentary came out because they never showed you these photos and papers and like that, I was, I was astounded by the amount of wounds. You know, I, I'm like, I heard he got whipped and beaten and things like that. But when you see it, it's bad. So from that, they're deriving, well, maybe they did something to him because he's telling me he's gay and he's automatically setting up his defense when nobody's even accused 
either parent of doing anything at this point. What do you guys say about blah blah that Geneva? I'm confused. I, I was a bit confused about the comment that he was gay. Since they're trying to cover their tracks, like I, I guess I understand why he would say things like he's a liar and stuff like that. I'm surprised that he thought that he would survive in order to tell police anything, though. The reason why I think that is because of this. If you if you go back and listen to what they were saying in the documentary, they thought that he was dead, or they thought that he would be dead by the time the paramedics got there. So they thought they had laid a beating on him enough to the point to where he wouldn't withstand it. But since he was still alive, and remember, he has his siblings in the house who they get to go run freely. So instead of having them risk the fact of going and saying, you know what, my brother was laying in the middle of the floor. He like he was really beat up. My mom didn't do anything. Pearl called 911. The 911 call was really to cover their tracks. Because I certainly believe this. If they were alone with Gabriel in that house that night, 911 would never got called. Gabriel would have probably laid there and died, and they would have did something else with the body, but 911 would have never got called. So 911 calling itself was a cover-up. I guess what I'm saying is I'm surprised that they thought that he would survive his... Considering that they thought he would be dead by the time paramedics got there, I just feel like common sense would tell you he's probably at eight years old and, what, 50 pounds? That's what Ariana weighs, and she's three. I don't know. Actually, I'm not... I think she's actually, like, 45 pounds because she's always been a little bit, you know underweight thanks to me and my genetics but she I mean that's about he's he would have been taller than her because he was like four foot something but he would have weighed the same amount as Ariana on Ariana that what that weight looks healthy you know what I mean she got her little belly and her fat little legs and all that stuff but on a first grader that's emaciation I'm just surprised that he would have said anything that he says is a lie because you would think that he would just assume that by this point, there's no way. I mean, they did everything they could to try to save him. I think one of the nurses or EMT people, the girl that's at the beginning of the documentary, she's throughout it, but she's like one of the first people to speak in the documentary. I mean, she was in tears talking about it, and they did everything that they could to save him. But think about it, though. The will to live is strong. So out of all the stuff that we've read and talked about, I guess in their mind, I would do the same thing. Gabriel should have been dead a long time ago, right? I mean, he's living with a scrotum full of BBs. Now, I don't know, you know, what kind of BBs it was, if they rust, whatever, but out of all of the beatings he took and all of the injuries and all the things that they put into his body, if I was doing that, I'd probably be scared too because I'd be like, you know what? I don't know what this kid's on or, you know, whatever he's doing, but he just keeps living. So I think at that point, even though they probably considered this to be the worst beating they gave him, he didn't want to take a chance in case Gabriel got there and started singing like, you know, singing like a bird. But the thing that irritates me is everybody else has seen these bruises before. Everybody else has reported these bruises before. They ain't doing anything to hide the bruises. I mean, Gabriel's running around in short sleeve shirts and they're beating him up in the face. Yet still, he couldn't get no help. 
Whoo, this case. I just had to say before we move past this part that I think I don't want to cry. Oh my gosh, I can feel it. But I think the most like for me, like the most heartbreaking thing is this child literally loved his mother until the day he died, bro. Like no matter what she did to him, how bad she beat him, nothing. Like the teacher talks about some, you know, how little kids make like Mother's Day gifts. And she asked him, I mean, this was after multiple calls to DCF, right? Do you want to make this? And he made his mother a Mother's Day gift, right? That was like, I like to make my mom smile by, and then he filled that in. You know what I mean? Like, this kid, like, loved his mom till the end. Like, and she just took his life like that. And his grandparents said the same thing. Said no matter what Pearl did to him, he loved her because it was his mom. All right, so on May 23rd of 2013, which is the next day, Pearl and Asaro got arrested. Pearl was arrested for felony child endangerment while Aguirre was arrested for attempted murder. However, when Gabriel Fernandez died, Pearl and Aguirre were both charged with first-degree murder with special circumstances of torture, and prosecutors pursued the death penalty. Now, let's stop there for a second. In case you guys don't know how the law works, the law is different in all, different, in all the 50 states. In California, to be able to secure a death penalty sentence, you have to have a special circumstance. If you cannot put a special circumstance to it, you cannot ask for the death penalty. Like, for instance, if there is a black dude and a white dude who's fighting, and the black dude kills the white dude, and they feel like that he killed them because he was white and he was in a rival gang, the prosecutor will try to put either a hate crime on him or a gang-related special charge on him. If either one of those two can be pressed, then they will ask for the death penalty. If they cannot get those to be from the judge to agree to those or the jury, then it just goes down for whatever murder count that it is. So in this case, they fought to get special circumstances on the case with both of them. Pearl pled guilty on February 15th of 2018 to her charge as part of a plea deal to avoid the death penalty and was sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole. In court, she stated, I want to say I'm sorry for what happened. I wish Gabriel was here alive. Every day I wish that I could have made better choices. I'm sorry to my children, and I want them to know that I love them. Now, I'm going to tell you why I think that she got that particular sentence, and if you watch the documentary, you, you pick up on this too. But first, I'll tell you about the trial of Asara Aguirre. Now, understand, before anybody's wondering how come they just didn't try Pearl and Asaro together, that was the original plan. But I don't know if it was to take guilt off of her or to make him look like he was the sole proprietor, but every time they tried to have a hearing with Pearl, in a sorrow in the same room, Pearl will cause a ruckus. 
So she would yell things at him like, you killed my baby. You're the reason why he's dead. You're while I'm in here. And the judge would try to get her to calm down. And she wouldn't calm down. Her attorney can get her to calm down. So they just said, we can't do this. We're going to have separate trials. So that's what happened. So Azaro Gary pled guilt, not guilty to the charge of first-degree murder with special circumstances of torture. And the case was prosecuted by Deputy District Attorney John Hatami and Deputy District Attorney Scott Yang. In September of 2017, jury selection began for the case. Questionnaires were given to prospective jurors, and they were informed that the trial could last as long as six weeks. Additionally, they were told the trial involved extensive internal and external injuries of the victim. The jury composition was seven women and five men. Now, if you guys know how juries work, I don't know if you guys ever sat on one that I have. I'm surprised that they didn't ask, uh, does anybody have any problems with the death penalty? Now, they may have. We just didn't see that part because since the prosecution is going for a death penalty case, it would be smart of him to get rid of anybody who said that they were against the death penalty to make that stick. So I've been on two juries before. They go around and ask a bunch of questions pertaining to that case. You know, have you ever been abused as a child? And this kind of case, what they would ask, do you have anything against the police? Do you have anything against DCFS? They ask all these questions so that they can eliminate the people that they think will hurt their case if they sit on the jury. When the trial began, jurors were given details about the extensive abuse Gabriel went through in the months preceding his fatal beating. Prosecutor John Hatami called Aguirre, or Aguirre pure evil and argued that he deserved the death penalty even though it doesn't even compare to what he did to Gabriel. Defense attorney John Allen argued that Aguirre was considered to be kind and compassionate during his employment at the retirement facility and that he had never committed a crime before meeting Pearl Fernandez. Jury deliberation began on November 14th of 2017, and a verdict was reached the next afternoon. Ultimately, the jury found him guilty of first-degree murder and guilty of the circumstances of torture charges. On December 11, 2017, jury deliberation began for the sentencing phase, and the next day, the jury was deadlocked. However, on December 13th, they decided to recommend the death penalty, which was accepted by Judge George G. Lomelli. Now, we're going to get into that because that's a whole nother thing. But let's back up real quick to Pearl. Here's why, Geneva, Pearl Fernandez got the sentence that she got. Because they kind of do this backwards on Wikipedia, but we've seen the documentary. Technically, Asara Aguirre was tried first. And they was able to press the special charge. Pearl ended up rolling on Asaro. And they said, if you give us what you know, if you, you know, and if you plead guilty. So they went to her and said, hey, Asaro's going to, and as you can tell us everything, you know, he's probably going to get this special circumstance and he's going to get the chair, you know, or in, in this case, he's going to get the needle. And so she agreed to plead guilty to save herself. Um, and she, because if she ran that risk of going to trial, they could have pressed the same charge on her and she too would have been recommended for and probably got the death penalty. That's why she didn't get what Asaro got. 
I'm totally against the death penalty, but they should have both got the same sentence in this one. So let's talk about why they was deadlocked. So there was one guy, and I know, Geneva, you said that you could see what, where he was in the town of death penalty, but there was one dude who held up the jury on both. He wouldn't say that he was guilty, and he would not vote yes for the death penalty. Here's the deal with that, though. And this is where I kind of say, come on, dude, now. He swore that the reason why he could not vote that Asara Gary was guilty is because he didn't feel like that there was enough proof. That he thought that Asaro was probably a good dude. He made a mistake. And he's not here to tell his side of the story. Now, that part's not true because the fact that he does have the right to testify. But in most of these cases, the, the, the attorney says, you should not get on the stand and say nothing. But I don't know, how did you feel? Just looking at the case, looking at everything that was done, looking at what's been said, Looking at all the bruises, would you have hung that jury saying that you thought that maybe Asaro was a good guy, he's not here to defend himself, so you do not feel comfortable giving him a first-degree murder charge? Me, personally, probably not. But when I listened to the man explain what his point of view was, I understood it, and this is why. Because Asario had character witnesses and i think that that was where he was saying that, that that he seemed like a good dude now i will say this about the man that talks about this the juror he's obviously of asian descent and he has a relatively strong accent so i actually had to go back and re-listen to what he said and I also watch documentaries with subtitles for this very reason, because you never know what kind of language barrier or accent somebody is going to have. And sometimes it can be difficult to understand. So I did watch this with subtitles. I understood his argument because I think that he was conflicted because of the testimonies of the character witnesses and of other people saying they didn't think that was his name is Osario, right? That's how you say it. Osaro. Osaro. Okay. That he that they didn't think there were other people that also said they didn't think that Osaro would have done what he did if he had never met Pearl. I'm not excusing what he did. But I can understand why. I mean, the other jurors were like annoyed with him. But I think it comes down to you have to be willing to look at both sides. You see what I'm saying? You can't. I feel like a lot of people that I spoke to about this juror were like, he's a moron. I don't understand why he hung it. And, and I have I even said you have to look at it from where he's sitting. I think that because Osario had, Osario had character witnesses, it was harder for him to say, absolutely put him to death you see what i'm saying my thing with pearl because i didn't speak on this a minute ago but my thing with pearl is i feel like both of them should have got the same sentence i feel like it was a cop out that she was able to take a plea i think the biggest reason is because this was not a case of mom went to work and the boyfriend killed the kid that's not what this case was they both did it i think that it's a, i think it's absolute trash that she did not I mean, I'm not for the death penalty either. I'm really not. I feel like the death penalty can become very messy. 
especially with the amount of crimes that we have of, you know, wrong convictions in this country. But when you have definitive proof that these people did it, they admitted to doing it. You know what I'm saying? Like this is this is an open and shut case. And I feel like if he's getting death penalty, she should have got it, too. Or at least she should have been. It should have been an option. I don't I, th- I feel like they gave her the easy way out by giving her a plea deal that allowed her to do life in prison. And the thing is, from where I sit, she should have got the harshest sentence of any of them because she's the mom and she allowed this crap to happen. Right. And that and I think that I think that's where I'm so conflicted on this. Also, is I'm like, even if we don't believe that she was abusive and, and whatever, I personally, I believe that from watching her in this documentary, like the way, the way she talked to guards in this, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's ridiculous, man. Like it's ridiculous. But even if we throw that part out the window, you stood there and watched it happen. You helped perpetrate what happened to your child. So I feel like if one is going to be charged as harshly as they were, she should have gotten, they both should have gotten it. Or like you said, she should have gotten the worst sentence. I just don't feel that it's fair that she's the one that got a plea deal. I mean, yeah, she's sitting in prison without, with no possibility of parole, but I don't feel like that's good enough. Well, about that, Drew, I kind of, this, this is where I kind of looked at. I'm like, okay, Jeffrey Dahmer had carried the witnesses too. Right. If you look over the history of Jeffrey Dahmer, which we have, everybody's saying how sweet he was. He went to his to his parents' house every holiday, ate dinner, and he was out there killing people at night. I think sometimes you have to, and being that he's of Asian descent too, I know that he does take Asians take a different mind frame than what we do in Western culture. And sometimes I do wish that myself included, more Americans had some of the sympathy that our friends who are Asian do have. And I have a couple of friends that are Asian and that's what they do. So when I, when Geneva's like, we got to kind of listen to his side. I'm thinking, I'm like, you know, what? I have a couple of Asian friends and they would have the same argument, no matter what is in front of them. And he saw all the pictures. They would have the same argument because they just inherently believe especially if somebody like the character was going to say, this is what he all did. And it's been said several times that they don't think he went down this road. If he didn't meet Pearl, they're like, well, genuinely in his heart, he good. This was a mistake, a big one, but I don't think that he needs to go to jail. And he felt the same way about the death penalty. So I don't know what caused this dude to flip. I mean, if you watch the documentary, I mean, I think at one point it was a couple of days, the jurors got fed up. They wrote to the, they they went back out to the judge and the judge was like, look guys, you guys, you know, this has been a two, three day trial. You guys haven't even deliberated for a full day at this point. You gotta go back. So I, I don't know if they just beat him into submission. I feel like they just made, I feel like they were just like, dude, we have to decide because the couple of jurors other than him that they interviewed were like, like the chick was like real cranky about I'm sorry I have to pick a family friendly word here but she was real cranky about the way she felt about this juror like you could tell that she was annoyed by it but I think that that's the problem 
with with Western society in general. I'm not saying everyone in America is like this, but I think that's the problem is that we in America, we want instant gratification, right? We we see what we see and then we're like, oh, well, he's guilty. Forget it. You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't think about any other side of this, because like we've said, we're not excusing what a sorrow did absolutely not like absolutely not like he admitted that he did it you know what i'm saying so he's guilty but i can believe and i think i i think that the more i think about it i do believe that he may not have done what he did if he had never met pearl i 100 believe that because of the research i did on pearl um the thing the stories i've heard being that I live in Palmdale, we probably got a little bit more bigger piece of the pie than what you did in Florida and around the world. You Again, I'm not taking up for a murder, I'm just saying. You cannot take a person who has the compassion that he did to even want to do a job where you're driving around the elderly and all of a sudden he just becomes a murderer overnight. No, Pearl manipulated him and she manipulated him through sexual means and You'll find this out because she had no qualms about that neither. She made a phone call into the jail when she know they recording it, and she's re- telling him, remember when they had this sexy good time on video? And she didn't care. Or her, she's in jail because her son's dead, and she's talking about, remember when I was on video and I was doing this to myself and you was cheesing? Oh, the jail call? Yeah, this should be the last thing you'd be thinking of when you are in jail for the murder of your son, right? But clearly not Pearl. And I feel like... She was saying the stuff she was saying, the sexual content that she was saying, and he was like, bro, what are you doing? Like, you know what I'm saying? Because the way that she kept repeating herself was not like he was going along with it. Still, she 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 cold. And uh, she was much more concerned about the fact that they messed up her or effed up her makeup, as she said, uh, that she had to buy on commissary than she was about the fact that she killed her son. So... I feel like that tells you all you need to know. So what happened to these two losers? Well, the one thing I don't tell you here is that uh, the judge was not real happy with them. Judge Lomelli actually told them something that he said he has never said from the bench in over 30 years. And he told them that he hoped they go to sleep at night. And that Gabriel, they just see everything they've ever done to Gabriel. And that Gabriel just tortures them beyond measure. And I agree. Pearl is serving off her life sentence right now in the Central California Women's Facility. As you know, that um, Asaro Aguirre did get charged with the first-degree murder with the special circumstance, found him guilty. Right now, he is, uh, he's been admitted to San Quentin State Prison. He's been there since June 13th of 2018, and he is currently awaiting execution However, his execution has yet to be set in accordance with the moratorium on capital punishment issued by our governor here, Gavin Newsom. So right now there's a moratorium on that. And if he ever loses, if he ever lifts that, they'll start executing people down here like mad, like they did in Texas. And Asaro would be probably on that. All right. The last part of this is I just want to let you guys know what happened with the government, the government's response. If you guys are wondering what happened with the government in the months preceding his death, Gabriel showed his injuries or reported abuse to a security guard, family members, and a teacher. 
which led to several calls to social services to no avail. After being hit with a metal belt, he asked his teacher, Jennifer Garcia, if it's normal to bleed. In response, Garcia called social services and was later called by social worker Stephanie Rodriguez, informing her that she was assigned to the case. On another day, Gabriel came to class with chunks of hair missing and a lump on his lip. When questioned about it by Garcia, Gabriel said his mother had punched him in his mouth. After having a discussion with the principal, Jennifer called Rodriguez back and informed her of the recent signs of abuse. Later, when Gabriel reported to his teacher that he was shot in the face with a BB gun by his mother, she once again informed social services of the new sign of abuse. After Gabriel went missing from school for 13 days, he returned and his teacher noticed his condition had worsened. She attempted to call Rodriguez, but her call was never returned. Gabriel's aunt, great-aunt, Elizabeth Carranza, and her husband called social services three times and talked to sheriffs twice regarding the welfare of Gabriel. 29 days before his death, a security guard, Arturo Miranda Martinez, at a Los Angeles County Welfare Office noticed extensive injuries on Gabriel's body, which prompted him to call 911, risking his job to report the injuries to sheriffs. Overall, between 2003 and 2012, 60 complaints were filed against Pearl Fernandez and Aguirre to the Los Angeles County Department of Children and Family Services. Two social workers, Stephanie Rodriguez and Patricia Clement, and two supervisors, Kevin Bond, or Kevin Baum and Gregory Merritt, for the Los Angeles County Department of Children and Family Services, were fired and charged with child abuse and falsifying public records. The unprecedented charges held significant consequences, including up to 11 years in prison. However, these charges were ultimately dismissed by California's 2nd District Court of Appeal for lack of probable cause. In January 2020, prosecutors attempted to get a rehearing for the case, but eventually decided to drop the charges. Additionally, nine sheriff's deputies were internally disciplined for not properly investigating the abuse allegations. Here's why I stand on that. They all should have went to jail. They said that they didn't have probable cause. They had plenty of probable cause. They had reports that was falsified. Because when you go out to these houses and you go to look at these children, they're supposed to mark certain things. They're supposed to mark a body chart, which says, you know, these are the bruises that was here wasn't there. They're supposed to mark when they came into the house what the house looked like, what the condition of the home was, if they had food in the refrigerator, if they had hot water or cold water, um, did they see the child? They falsified all of this. They made up things for the body chart. They said they saw Gabriel when, in fact, they did not see Gabriel. All of this could have saved them. The police has the right to ask you at that point because it's a child abuse investigation to come into your home and to at least see the child and see where the child sleeps. None of these people did any of that because if any of that was done, Gabriel would be alive right now. And I'm telling you, between 2003 and 2012, there were 60 complaints and they all fell on deaf ears. But yet and still, every day in this state, because of the phone call that was made on me and my wife and my son Jacob for no reason at all, 
they remove children who have a good home, who's fed every day, who's bathing, who has good clothes, who's telling you they're not abused, and they have no signs of abuse at all. But these are the kids that they remove. But somehow they miss the children that is most in danger. To prove that point, not only did it happen down here on Gabriel, five years later after Gabriel's death, it happened again. So now, five years later, Anthony Avalos dies by almost the same circumstances. In 2020, it happened again. Noah Quattro died by almost the same circumstances. And every time this comes out, they say what? This is just like Gabriel's case. In California, at least in Palmdale, they have a task force now. That is all the police officers do is they come out if they get a DCFS call. I can't remember what the acronym is, but it's all about protecting children. They have to respond to that call within 12 hours of getting the call from the person reporting it. Because they messed up this case. Geneva, what do you have to say in closing the Gabriel Fernandez case? I mean, I think the reason that they said they didn't have probable cause is because of what they said in the documentary. There was a part in the documentary. I don't remember who it was that said it. It was not, I don't think it was one of the people getting charged. I think it was like a lawyer or something that said that if they were going to try this case, they'd have to try every case where a child died. There's an author, I believe her name is Casey Watson. I've read so many of her books. She's a foster parent. And she has even said this. Now, she's a foster parent in the UK, all right? But in her books, of course, she has to change names and things like that. But the stories that she writes are stories that she, are real stories that she's dealt with while being a foster carer, right? And she's even said that, there were that there that she has gotten children that had cases where their equivalent to DCF goes in and does everything that they can and tries to figure out what's going on, but it takes years sometimes for them to actually be able to build a case. This is not that kind of case. This had obvious issues. There were multiple calls that were made. Uh, there, you know, th- there was there were multiple things that just kind of they just got like swept under the rug and no one did anything about it. This was not a case where they went in and they, they looked around and Gabriel had a room and a bed and nice, you know what I'm saying? Like he didn't have all of the amenities that he should have had. He lived in a box. You know what I'm saying? Like he literally lived in a box smaller than Harry Potter's cupboard. I mean, great that they got fired, I guess. You know what I'm saying? Like, great that they got fired because that means that they can't, that theoretically they're not going to be able to work for the state anymore. No matter where they live, like, they're probably not going to be able to get some kind of a DCF or CPS job for the for the state government, right? But also, like, I don't know. Like, I just feel like... Just like in the case of Pearl, I don't feel like they got what they deserved, to be honest. That's fine. Like, I understand y'all got big loads. You know what I mean? I get it. But don't try to say that you didn't do anything wrong, that you you did your due diligence. I just feel like to say that is to just dismiss everything that happened to Gabriel like it was nothing. That is the common excuse that they do use down here. And I do know that is 
not an excuse they do overload them. But if you've got to try every case, retry them. Because I, I bet money out of all those cases you've got to try in court, you're going to find that there's a lot of, of holes that will slip through. There's a lot of cracks you guys just stepped over. The fact of the matter is, is the reason why I have a hard time buying the whole rhetoric of, you know, the parent was supposed to be able to cover this over up because they're supposed to be trained that that should not happen. They're supposed to be trained to see signs that nobody else is seeing, even without the child saying anything. And just the, 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 the mere fact of walking through the house. I mean, if they would have walked through the house they were supposed to any of these times, they would have found Gabriel back there in that box. They all should have went to jail for 10, 11 years, and that still isn't enough. Yes, I'm glad that they are no longer working for DCFS down here, but still, everybody felt Gabriel. So they, they should have went to jail, in my opinion. What you got to say in closing on Gabriel Fernandez? I mean, I'm not going to name her because I don't know if she wants to be named, but I did have a friend that had asked if we were going to cover this case. There's another case, too. I have to ask her again what that case is because I don't remember. Like, here's the case, girl. I hate this case. I don't like it. I did watch the documentary when it first came out, and then I watched it again for this podcast episode. I hated it both times. I mean, at the end of the day, I just don't feel like... I feel like the only person that was brought to justice is the person that I feel like if anybody was going to get a plea, it should have been them. Like, I feel like Pearl should have been tried first, and then Osaro should have been... I mean, if we're really going to look at it that way, like, I just feel like no one should have got a plea. But if someone was going to get it, I feel like Osaro should have got it. Not Pearl. Or that they both just went up for the death penalty. And I'll say again, I don't believe in the death penalty just because of the messiness that surrounds it. But in this case, like, I feel like that was their due diligence. You know what I'm saying? So that's my final thought. My final thought is, yes, even though I do not believe that Asaro Aguirre would have done this without Pearl, the fact of the matter is that he did it. Everybody failed Gabriel, with the exception of his uncles and his grandparents because, and his teacher, because they tried. His biological father even says that he failed him because he wasn't there to protect him because he was doing a stint in jail as well. So everybody, all the social workers, the police officers, everybody failed, and they, in my opinion, contributed to this boy's death. All they had to do was their job, walk in, make sure that he really was gone, make sure that he really was in Texas. Take Gabriel away out of all the calls you got, 60 calls that you got in the span of years, and Gabriel still died the horrible death that he did. So if you're wondering why it took us so long to do this one, I'm going to tell you why that is. Like I said, it hits real home for me because Gabriel lives about maybe five and a half minutes up the road from my house. The one thing they don't tell you in Wikipedia, I'm going to tell you now. Outside of the apartment complex where Gabriel Fernandez lives, there's a tree. It has been named Gabriel's tree. Ever since his death, that tree is decorated every death anniversary, every birthday, every holiday, just if somebody's thinking of him. The store, the dollar store that's right behind there ran out of candles 
because of the fact that people come in, they buy the candles all the time just around the tree. And after the documentaries released, they didn't have candles for four weeks. Somebody went to the apartment complex and they painted a mural of Gabriel on the back wall that was vacant of that complex. And now Teddy Bears sits right on that wall. How do I know that is because if you think this case is horrible enough, fact of the matter is, is you guys may or may not ever forget it. And if you decide that you want to forget it, you need to look, listen back to this episode or go watch the Netflix documentary. But for me, I live Gabriel's death at least every other day. See, I have to pass by Gabriel's tree and I have to pass by Gabriel's mural to get to the stores that's located directly behind the apartment complex that he lives. Behind this complex, there's a Dollar General, there's a Dollar Store, there's a Starbucks, there's a Pizza Hut, in and out is across the parking lot. So I relive this case every day. And every time me and my daughter or my son pass by, we always throw a beloved sign in remembrance of what happened to him. He would have been graduated from high school by now if he would have lived. And I know that he was a, he was a good little boy and it's something that he never deserved. And I promise you guys, because they are equally as important, we, we will be covering the case of Anthony Avalos. We'll also be covering the case of Noah Quattro. One of those is close to me too because one of my best friends knows one of the little boys. I just can't do it back to back. As you can see, this one's already tearing me up. So I hope that Pearl and the Sorrow get what they deserve. And I hope that across the globe, DCFS gets looked into. I mean, we are the poster boys and girls for what not to do. They use this case to train every other agency across the world for DCFS of what not to do. So again, guys, if you have to call DCFS somebody, make sure you're calling and make sure you're calling because you know abuse is going on. And if you know abuse is going on, stand in the way of that gap. The only thing that Jennifer Garcia did not do, the only thing the principals of that at Summerwind did not do is say, we refuse to send this kid home. He cried when he had to get on the bus to go home. Nobody was big enough to say, we know he's getting abused. We don't call 60 times. I'm not sending him home. Call the police out here, but he's not going home if I'm here. If somebody would have did that, I think Gabriel will still be here. So rest in peace, Gabriel. Your tree and your mural is a constant reminder of what, that we have to be better in this world and people need to do their job. And maybe no other kid will end up like Gabriel, Anthony, and Noah. All right, guys, we thank you for joining us for this one. That is the end of this case. Geneva. Do you have any shout outs this week? I do. This shout out's a little different this week. Um, I have been kind of, I, I mean, I listen to the same podcast all the time. <laughs> so I feel like, I feel like I've probably shouted out every podcast that I listen to. I've been trying some new ones, but I'm not sure. I don't want to shout out any that I don't personally enjoy, if that makes sense. Um, so this week, I actually want to shout out a book. 
I mean, you could get you. I listen to it in an audiobook form because that's easier for me. The book that I want to shout out is called Fear is My Homeboy How to Slay Doubt, Boss Up, and Succeed on Your Own Terms. And it is by Judy Holler. I want to shout this book out because for 2021, I made a promise to myself that I would do more like personal development type books. Um, I really slacked on it last year. I think I only read like two and all the rest were just like fun, like mindless reads. But 2021 for me, I don't know about anybody else, is a year of growth, you know, new beginnings and all that stuff. We about to get a new president and all that stuff. So I will say this because I always say this for people that may not like any kind of profanity. This is not a... I wouldn't call it an explicit book, but I will say that there is some adult language that is used sometimes. So there is some swearing throughout the book. It's not a book. When I listen to it, I don't listen to it without headphones um, just because I have a three-year-old who is a parrot and she repeats everything. So if that is not your thing, she does even give a warning in the beginning, I think in like the prologue, that if that's not your thing, that this isn't the book for you, but I really think, I mean, it's kind of a tough love kind of book. Like it kind of just punches you in the face, but I highly recommend it. So my shout out this week is a book. Fear is my homeboy. Very good. I mean, I'm only on chapter four, but even so I'm gonna finish it. You know what I mean? If you get the audiobook, it's read by the author, which I always think is great. So that's it. You got any shout outs this week, Dad? Due to the nature of this episode, I'm going to shout it out again. If you guys didn't hear it, you guys didn't go and hear this podcast. Go listen to Do No Harm. It is by investigative reporter Mike Hixenbaugh, and it is on the Wandery platform. Story about Melissa Bright and her family, as well as another family who did everything they were supposed to do. Doctors lied on them, and DCFS got in their life took their kids and one of the kids almost died uh, because of an illness that he had and wouldn't let the mom do what she needed to do. So please go listen to Do No Harm and you will see the behind the scenes a little bit more about DCFS. All right, guys, we thank you for tuning in to this heartbreaking case. And we do appreciate you guys for always coming back and listening to cases that we have for you all right guys so with what that said a new world is coming by the time you hear this we have had the 46th president of the united states would have been sworn in with his vice president joe biden kamala harris making history as the first female as well as the first african-american and the first asian descent woman to be sworn into this position It's the time to heal, guys. And whether you agree or disagree with who the president is, I think we all need to work together to get our world back to where it was at. I think from what Joe Biden's been showing over the last couple of weeks, I think that he's on board with that. We got to forget the past, embrace our brothers and sisters, and try to move on because tomorrow is not promised to us. So, guys, we hope that you guys be safe out there. Wear your mask again. It is not a political statement, but you are protecting yourself as well as your fellow man. And we look forward to talking to you and giving you guys another case real soon.
So with that being said, as always, don't commit any crimes out there. So you don't end up on our podcast. Thank you for listening to A Day With Crime. Artwork created by Geneva McClam. Sound mixing and editing done by David McClam. Don't forget to subscribe and join us on our social media outlets at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash A Day With Crime. Twitter at A Day With Crime. Instagram at A Day With Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash a day with crime. You can also email us at a day with crime at gmail.com and youtube.com forward slash a day with crime. Thank you for listening. And as always, a crime a day keeps the doctor away. Until next time.